You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where we read the Bible and take it seriously. Most of the time. Seriously enough <laughs> to take it seriously. Oh, we take the Bible seriously. We don't take our, ourselves so much seriously. <laughs> oh, we've never been guilty of that. That's, well... <laughs> Well, there might have been a brief moment, like in the later teens, early twenties. Everyone, I think, takes themselves a little too seriously in their late teens, mid to late teen years. But, uh, yeah, we don't want to go down business. (laughs) Yeah, we don't want to return to those years. Yeah, if you knew us during that time, forgive us. We've changed. (laughs) So, anyway, but that's enough about that. I suppose. Uh, yeah, so, if you want to know more stories about that, contest, contact us directly. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, so uh, that being said, we are back in the Bible. We should yeah. get back to the Bible. Yeah, we're, we're still in 2 Samuel. Uh, we're in chapter 6. Uzzah has just died, and David is scared to bring the ark home. Yeah, so we and, should, yeah, that's where we left, and that's what we should talk about, I suppose. Yeah, I think that's why people are here. Um, but you know, he, the, he is. So, oh, I, go ahead. I think we should do a quick recap, okay. though. I mean, the sure. Yeah, they happen to remember they left the ark and what? <laughs> Wherever they uh, they left the ark, presumably in someone's garage or garage equivalent. <laughs> um, and, we hadn't got to that point yet, and they remembered that it was there. Oh and yeah, they went to get it, uh, and they. Instead of contacting the priest about it and getting the right stuff going on, they contacted the military leaders, and the military leaders decided to do things the complete wrong way, <laughs> if you can believe that. The most well, efficient the way. the most efficient way, <laughs> what presumably would be the most efficient. The oxen stumbled. What I think is interesting, the oxen stumbled. Mm-hmm. There was no indication that the ark started to fall. Right. And then Uzzah stuck his hand out and, and, and touched the ark, and then he died. Yeah, and the rabbis make a very big point that it is that God caused the oxen to stumble to make this point, to teach Israel this lesson. And so it wasn't just, oh, the oxen stumbled. It was, no, God's like, I've had enough of this, and we're going to put an end to this right now. Okay. And so, yeah, I, there, there's a lot of... Uh, really interesting stories. And I didn't even go into like half of them about this whole incident because I I think like me, this is a story that's bugged a lot of people Mm -hmm. and trying to figure out how to make sense of it. And that's why I was talking last week about, you've got to go back to first Samuel four. You've got to go back and look at when the Philistines took the ark and what God was teaching them in that moment. And not just the Philistines, but also the nation of Israel and what it meant to have the ark as a symbol of God's presence. And more than a symbol that God actually made himself known above the ark. And I think sometimes we just, we've got too many Hollywood images. We've got Mm -hmm. too many, you know, just the things in the Old Testament, we don't always think about how real they were for the person in the moment. Yeah. And, you know, that's one of the things I do love about the way that um, Judaism remembers these events is that you're supposed to actually stop and 
uh, when you celebrate a holiday uh, like Passover, that you would actually stop and try to imagine yourself there. Mm-hmm. And so you're, you're, it's, it's thought of as joining yourself to that moment, to the people in those moments. It's not just a, oh, this happened once upon a time. This is a real event that shaped my life and why I am where I am today, right. even in the year we are. So, uh, you know, this, this story, uh, there's not a holiday for it, but at the same time, I think it's so shocking that people do go, wait a minute, if that had been me, I would have been the person to try to stop mm-hmm. the ark from falling. Yeah. And so it definitely, I mean, it, it makes sense to try to stop the ark from falling. I mm-hmm. mean, if you, if you're assuming it's about to fall, well, especially, and, especially when it's a, it's a sacred object. Right. I mean, how many times have you, have we dropped things and tried to catch them? <laughs> <laughs> like children, uh, um, so. <laughs> you don't try to catch I'm your try- children. Well, no, I do. I, like, I'm trying to think if I've ever dropped my kid. I don't think I have, but that's irrelevant. <laughs> I could be wrong. Well, lots happened, and you got dropped one time. <laughs> I got dropped one time. Yeah, uh, but I mean, a lot's happened in the last seven years, and most of it with less sleep than typical. Well, that's part of being a parent. Yes. So, <laughs> so, but so this this story. One of the things it's teaching the nation is you have to do what God tells you to do in the manner he tells you to do it, and you need to respect him. And that's really what the the point of the story. And plus, you know, I think it's also teaching David a little bit of humility because mm-hmm. he's just come off the back of these major successes. And he, he's done so well. He's king over all of Israel. He has conquered Jerusalem. He's defeated the Philistines. He's flying high. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, he'd also had some events where in the past, where like when he ate the showbread, God seemed to let him get by with, you know, breaking the rules. Right. So h- how does David view himself? And does he need to be brought back in line and understand that he better be just as willing to show God the respect he's due? as anybody else. And Mm -hmm. David seems to get it because he understands at this point, he is looking at an object and a God that is dangerous and God is always dangerous. And I think we tend to forget that too. So I, I, I'm finding that I I found the story disturbing before, but now I kind of love it. So, but we'll pick up in verse 10. And it says, so David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Now, like I said, David's realized that the ark is too dangerous to bring into Jerusalem. And he knows that if he tries it, he could probably hurt more people than he can help. So now we're going to store it in someone else's house. Right, because it had been Abinadab's house before this, after the Philistines had returned it. And... The, the people and David are now being confronted with a God who will not tolerate people who are failing to be who they were called to be. Mm-hmm. These are the people who were set aside to worship God and to worship God properly. And so now we are being told, hey, God's going to require that his nation uphold the standards that he gave them. Yep. That's part of being an Israelite, is being that nation that's set apart, that's holy. and they have to they have to rise to the occasion. Now, David takes the ark to the home of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The name is easy to parse because Obed is servant, 
Edom is red. So the traditional reading of this is that this is a servant who shamed a king. He caused the king's face to turn red hmm. in embarrassment because he... Which king? David specifically. Okay. Because he was able to take the ark into his house and nobody dies. And David wasn't. <laughs> exactly. But we do have a problem because he's a Gittite. And a Gittite is just somebody who's from Gath. Well, who's from Gath? Goliath and his brothers. So this was a Philistine city. This is a city that was uh, inhabited by giants. And now we've got this Gittite who it has the ark in their home. So we have to come up with a solution for this. How do we reconcile all of that? Well, didn't we talk about the, just because you live in a place doesn't mean you're a descendant? That is absolutely one possible um option. Another is he's one of the 600 Gittites who followed David. We're going to learn about them in 2 Samuel 15. Okay. So we've got some time to get there. But this would mean that he actually was a Philistine, which is an interesting idea uh, that David had Philistines who were faithful to him. Uh, Again, dispensing with the idea that there wasn't only 20 people who you know, God saved before Jesus came. Right, right. I and, say 20 is a random number. It just seems like there's... 20 foreigners that God said, oh, yeah, you're good enough. Well, no, I'm just saying total. There seems to be this implication that only the people specifically mentioned in the Bible, everyone else got, just got written off as... Exactly, exactly. And the cost of the system or something. It's amazing how many times you do find these foreigners kind of folded into the Israelite nation. Well, and, and it's amazing how it's just kind of casually mentioned in the Bible... In no the big Old deal. Testament, and like the, it, it really is the modern, uh, you know, the popular, I guess modern, the popular, like reading of the Bible that we grew up with, and a lot of, and a lot of our friends grew up with, especially in like more fundamentalist camps, is that only Israel ever had any hope of being saved, mm -hmm. and only, only the Israelites who managed to do, you know, all of the law, because according to the misreading of the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and I know we mention this and we harp on it a lot, but it's really important to, to hear it. I mean, because, you know, every episode might be someone's first. Right. But it's really important to hear it that, you know, the, the covenant was not a, quote, covenant of works. Right. Like we want to talk about. And pardon me, I'll turn the do not disturb on in just a minute. Uh, I just got a notification. But, you know, it's this idea that, only people, only the people of Israel had any hope of being mm -hmm. saved, and that's we we overread certain things. Well, we don't understand election. Uh, we we have failed to understand that in uh, in the Old Testament very much. It's the election to service, and their job as a nation was not to be so set apart that they were the only ones who had a relationship with God. It was. They were set apart to draw other people to uh -huh. have this relationship uh -huh. with God. Well, and I think I, I think election to service is not just an Old Testament concept either. I agree. I mean, I think we see that with Paul. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, again, we're we're gonna lose some <laughs> friends and alienate some people here, but I think God decided with Paul. Mm -hmm. Paul's going to be responsible for for spreading the gospel. Uh huh. And I think he started being responsible for spreading the gospel by persecuting Christians because he was driving them out of Jerusalem well, in order point. for the gospel to spread. Right. And you have Paul's life as this microcosm of what he's writing about in Romans, mm -hmm. saying, hey, if someone rejecting the truth is responsible for this much of the truth getting spread, <laughs> how much more would someone, Paul, 
for example, right. accepting the truth can spread the gospel even farther. So, you know, it's, you, you look at it, and I think it's God was going to use Paul, whether he su- surrendered to Jesus on the Damascus Road oh, or not. Now, I, I think it was, you've mentioned before, Paul had already made up his mind. He was looking he, for God. He was, he was, he believed he was looking for God. And when mm-hmm. Jesus came and corrected him, uh-huh. I don't believe that that was an irresistible act. I think Paul could, and again, <laughs> right? making a lot of people <laughs> mad right now, I think Paul could have said no. Right. And I think at that point, it would have been sealed for him if he had said no, that he was never making it in, but God still would have used whatever actions, just like he used Pharaoh, mm-hmm. to carry out his plan. Oh, so we can look at a number of people, and matter of fact, one of the traditional readings of Balaam is that he would have been the most effective uh, prophet to the nations mm-hmm. had he ever fully surrendered to God. Yeah. And so, you know, he still has the gift of prophecy. He still is able to use it. It's never taken away from him mm-hmm. in his lifetime. Now, does he use it correctly? Only when God pushes him into a corner. Right. But it still accomplishes the purposes that God had laid out for him. And so, um, yeah, and that's the thing with Israel. They are never, um, they don't get it right. Election didn't mean they were perfect. It doesn't mean that they were able to specifically, I mean, look at the story we're reading. They're they're making a mess of things. Well, and you you can't deny that David was elected by God to be king. Exactly. Exactly. And he obviously screws up so much stuff, and that's the story we're getting into. Uh, Precisely. I mean, and Saul, and Samson, and... Mm -hmm. Who else? I mean, uh, the list goes on. Abraham. Yeah. There, well, and there's no perfect role model in the Old Testament. And, right. But that's the point. And, and everybody, oh, well, look, you you worship this God who has all these followers who are so messed up. That's the point. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, it's, he, if he can redeem these guys, he can redeem you. Mm-hmm. And so no one's hopeless. And so, and now we've got these 600 uh, Gittites and Philistines that are following David, and they're part of his army, and they help promote and protect and mm-hmm. expand the kingdom of God. And they're not part of, quote unquote, the elect. And so that's that's an interesting point yep. when you put it back in context. Now, the, the other option for these Gittites is uh, that, or this particular Gittite, Obed-Edom, uh, is he is a Levite because uh, there is, there's several Obed-Edoms in the Bible. Okay. So trying to figure out which one is which and where they overlap uh, is problematic. So in First Chronicles 15, we have one named who is a musician and a doorkeeper, but he's not referred to as a Gittite. We know he's one of the Levites. Okay. So that would go along with, oh, he lived there, but he wasn't necessarily a descendant from that place. And so, um, again, if you take that view, then the Levite... Uh, the Levite and the Gittite don't have any connection. You, you have to break that connection because mm. the Levite wouldn't live in the um, city of Gath. Right. So it, it's, it's not clear in Scripture. We just don't have any kind of clear-cut um, explanation. And you can see that the, the explanations we can offer are kind of all over the place. Now, option two is the most popular, that he is a, a Levite, but then why is he identified as a Gittite? And so that's a really 
interesting thing because it does make sense. You know, Abinadab was a Levite. And so he would have known how to take care of the ark. And so it makes sense that you would think if you leave the ark someplace else again, that you would leave it with another Levite. Um, the idea that he's an Israelite who lives in uh, in Gath and was possibly had no connection to the Levites is kind of a meh for me. I mean, it's not impossible. It, it could have happened. Um David and his men have been living in the Philistine country and, you know, until quite recently, they hadn't been able to move back. So the fact that, you know, at this point, the Philistines who had followed him kind of moved back, um, you know, it, it works. But I don't really see anything theologically compelling about either of those two um, options. And I, I like the one that has the most room for asking theological uh, questions. Okay. And option one, that this is one of the 600 Philistines, it gives us the most to, to think about. Now, it's not, um, I don't think we can completely prove it, and I'm not claiming that it's completely correct. Mm-hmm. But if you remember back to um, the opening of 1 Samuel, the 4 through 6, where the Philistines did take the ark, then this idea of what it would mean for the king of Israel to surrender the ark to a Philistine at this point for protecting his people, it would really speak to the level of fear that David has experienced. Mm -hmm. And you got to remember that when the Philistines brought the ark back and, you know, they had cows who had uh, nursing calves Mm -hmm. who had not been yoked before and they put it on the, the, the cart and they're doing their best to honor the ark according to their customs. God didn't strike them dead. God allowed them to carry through their purposes because it's all they knew to do. Sure, sure. And so they're doing the best they, they know how to do. Now, once the ark gets back to Beth Shamash, then that's when God strikes the Israelites dead because they didn't say, okay, these guys have it wrong. Mm-hmm. It's back in our care. We need to correct this. And so it really... It, it makes for some interesting thoughts about who the Philistines were and what David was thinking at this point in time. And I'll note that Zamora actually leads towards this reading. So I'm not alone. Okay. I, I just don't know if either of us would ever be able to, um, to prove it completely. Because sure. Zamora believes that this is one of the, the Philistines that joined David when he's in Ziklag. And if he had been a Philistine, Philistine who had been with David in Ziklag and had fought alongside David for all of these years, then David wouldn't have a problem trusting him with the national treasure. And so it kind of enlarges that message that God really isn't a respecter of persons. God is looking for the persons who, whose heart is pure and whose mm-hmm. motivation is pure. And so even as um, God would punish anyone you know, a Philistine for messing up. He's going to punish Israelites for messing up, but he's also going to bless the Philistine who tries to get it right and shows God the proper uh, proper honor. And I think we forget that, you know, there is provision, even in the Torah, there's pr- provision for sins someone commits in ignorance because mm-hmm. there's, you know, we learn as we go along and God understands that and he lets us learn. Now, once we know something, we're responsible for it. And the nation of Israel should have understood how to treat the sacred object. Right. So, verse 11, 
And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. So three months is an interesting time frame. Uh, Judah was informed Tamar was pregnant after the three months after their encounter. And that's in Genesis uh, 38, 24. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for three months. And there's this idea that three months and childbirth, childbirth is they're very connected within the biblical society. I mean, because this is the point where it's starting to get hard to hide that you're pregnant. This is when people mm. start to understand and realize, hey, my neighbor's pregnant, my friend's pregnant, and there's no denying it. And this is exactly what the rabbis read into the story, because when they say that Obed's, he, Edom's house was, was blessed, they're saying he was blessed with increased fertility. And it was a season of blessing that was needed actually to birth a new theology within, within the nation of Israel, because at this point, the only contact and the, the, the main thing that the people who are living at this point know about the ark is it's dangerous. Mm -hmm. they, they probably know the story of what happened when it was captured by the Philistines. They probably know the story of what happened at Bet Shamish. They know that Uzzah's died. So now they have to see that not only can someone survive with the ark in their midst, that blessing can actually come out of having the ark in, in your house. And it's that balance of rejoicing with trembling because, you know, it, is God dangerous? Absolutely. But you have to balance that against his desire to bless and his love for humanity. And it's the two pieces together that give you the whole picture. If you just look at God's justice and his wrath and his holiness, then you're never going to be able to, to appreciate his love and his kindness, his grace and his mercy. But if you're, that's, if these are the things that you're looking at, those are the only things you're looking at, then you might be tempted to think that God isn't a God of justice and a God of wrath. So you've got to hold those two things in um, intention. Excuse me. And what um, better picture than a Philistine that takes the ark into his house being blessed by a God mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. who who is a God that he didn't owe any allegiance to. Right. And all of a sudden, he's doing the right thing, and God says, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna bless you." I mean, that that's huge. Yeah. And I think we forget that God is all about turning our presuppositions and our preconceived ideas on their head, and He does this by revealing His character. Right. Almost every time you have somebody whose theology is blown apart, it's because they've grasped something new about God's character. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, if you were just reading through um, Chronicles, there would be a break between verse 11 and 12. And we've already looked at those verses because they, uh, they're parallel to 1 Samuel 5, the, the previous chapter. Okay. So this is, in Chronicles, this is where the writer adds in about David's wives and children, about defeating Jerusalem, about defeating the, uh, the Philistines. Mm -hmm. And then he picks up the story of the ark after those events, whereas, you know, like I said before, the author of Samuel just gives you one cohesive narrative, like there's no break in any of the events. And this is where the story really takes two different paths in the different books. Uh, Samuel gives that very stripped down version. 
he only gives us three verses about the final uh, journey into to Jerusalem. The chronicler gives us 24, and uh, you know the book of Samuel gives us a total of 23 verses from start to, to finish of the story. Sure. And the chronicler gives us 24 verses in comparison to the three final verses of Samuel. And he's going to be outlining the people and the roles that they played on the journey. So if you want to look this up, the, the story is in First Chronicles 15. And David has built a house for himself. He's also pitched a tent for the ark to be housed in when it arrives in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And he explains to the people only the Levites can carry the ark. And he gives list of the Levites, their names, their families, their clans. And he also gives a command for the Levites to, to sanctify themselves. Right. So he says in First Chronicles 15, 13, Because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke forth upon us because we did not carry it in the way that, it was, that is ordained. So David understands what went wrong. He, he, he knows what he needs to correct this mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. And he takes the, the proper steps to make it what yeah. it should be. So the, the moral le- of the story, check the manual. Right. right? <laughs> do what you were told to do. <laughs> I'm sorry. So, yeah. <laughs> Kidding. Well, the Levites do what they're told. And in verse 15, it says, And the Levites carried the ark of God upon their shoulders with poles, as Moses commanded, according to the word of the Lord. Now, this is significant because we mentioned it previously that there's an argument that the Torah was lost at this point in time and that Israel didn't have access to it. And some people say they had access to none of it. Some people claim it was just Deuteronomy. That's what I've always heard is that just the book of Deuteronomy was lost. Yeah, there, there's a little debate on how much is known and how much isn't known. And, and there's I, also a theory that Deuteronomy was written written after the fact and claimed to be part of the Torah. So, Yeah. Well, there's also another theory that Leviticus was written after the fact and claimed to be, which is, yeah. So there's all sorts of debate, but what I think this shows us that the law of Moses and the word of the Lord were definitely known at this point in time, because how else did David know that this is what Moses had commanded them to do? And even if the written words were lost, the oral tradition would have been alive and well, because in this time, like we've discussed before, having the written word was something that was reserved for just the elites. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it was something that was very a very small fraction of the community would have had access to. But the oral tradition where you taught your children like it commands in Deuteronomy and you, you explain these laws and you ingrained them into their way of thinking over and over again, then now it's not, there's no way it can be lost as long as the people are observing mm-hmm. those commands. Mm-hmm. So David knows what Moses had to say about transporting the ark. That's the big deal. Now, David appoints musicians and he tells them which instruments that they should play. We're given a list of names. These are for sounds of joy. That's verse 16. (laughs) Now, verse 22, I thought this was um, an interesting verse. It says, Kananiah, Kananiah, sorry, uh, the leader of the Levites in music should direct the music because he understood it. Now, (laughs) I know we could probably do like a whole episode. Oh, man. Yeah, I could probably talk. I could probably talk for a couple hours about um, (laughs) what that could mean. But go ahead. 
Well, I mean, <laughs> you know, I think there's a principle here that the music leader should understand music. You don't say. I, I, I mean, I mean, <laughs> I have been in some churches, okay, where the music leader did not understand music, and he didn't have any, did not have any friends who loved him enough to tell him that he did not understand music. Yeah, uh, yeah. No, and that's that's really that's that's one of my hobby horses is talking to people, um, or whenever I hear people talk about, oh, you know, this whole bit about. God doesn't call the qualified. God qualifies the called. Yeah, but you got to work with him. You right. Know, but the thing is, that's not always true because there, I mean, granted, you could say it's retroactively that, you know, he led them through this process in their life to get the qualifications to do the thing he wanted them to do. Sure. Let's go with that. We can do that. But you also have to look at in, you know, when he talks about Bezalel, he says, I've called him because I've put a spirit of understanding in him. Uh, wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. Because because he understands and is skillful with the things mm-hmm. that God wants him to do. So again, that's we could spend hours on that. <laughs> I don't want to. We've got. Let's work on this text. Okay, but um, yeah, but th- this idea that he is appointed for this role because he does understand. And David was smart enough to recognize that he understood. And this is why David chose him. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he didn't say, oh, he's such a nice guy. And he just loves the Lord with all his heart. I, I almost feel like I'm trying to get you wound up. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but- <laughs> well, I like, yeah. I do know, I, you know, there are, there are some churches where the leadership doesn't recognize that. <laughs> and that's part of, you know, knowing your team is being part of a leader. Uh, right. be part of being a good leader, I should say. Well, and that's exactly what David is. He's demonstrating that skill. Now, I do find it interesting. The word for music here is mashal. And it's an interesting to- a choice because it means to lift or to carry a burden. And so this is part of the description of a song leader. Uh, it can also mean utterance or sp- more specifically, a prophetic utterance. Mm-hmm. And the rabbis say that David chose uh, Kananiah because he wasn't just a music leader, but he was a prophetic voice who was supposed to inspire the other prophetic voices that surrounded him. And I, I thought that was really interesting. Art Scroll um, translates this verse as the Levites lifted their voice as they would lift the souls of all those around as well. And so there's this overlap between the musicians and the prophetic. And if you've read my, my um, master's thesis, you'll, you'll find that. I mean, yeah, because who hasn't? Yeah, who hasn't? If you're in the paddle store, you can read it. It's <laughs> one of our files. Uh, but there's this, this teaching within ancient cultures that artists, and that's visual artists, that's musical artists, that's people who write. Um, the artist and the prophet inhabit the same role. And so it's this idea of creation and the idea of presenting new possibilities. But there's also this overlap between musicians and gatekeepers, because if you go through these lists and chronicles, which we're not going to do because I'm not going to try to stumble over that many names, but the idea, the, the musicians were the gatekeepers. Right. And so the idea that they would fulfill a prophetic function and a musical function and a protective function all at once. And I have to wonder how would this, how would this impact the way we view church musicians today if we took these principles and applied them to the musicians we have in our congregation or leading congregation in worship? Because there, there's no way that 
these guys were just the warm-up band for the preacher. They, They actually had something significant that they were doing, and it was they were bringing and allowing the people who deserve to be in God's presence into God's presence. Well, and the problem is that there's a balance there, because I've been in churches where they overemphasize that idea that the worship leader is this, you know, mystical person who right changes the atmosphere. <laughs> I like my nitrogen oxygen mix pretty much as it is. Um, but anyway, um, no, I, I, well, you said that and I actually, <laughs> I, I just watched, uh, surviving death, I believe, uh, it's on Netflix and it's about, uh, different ideas of what happens after we die. And they had this medium on there and, they before they would contact the dead, they would raise the frequency, and they were literally, I kid you not, singing the song, "The Rose." And so, you know, there there is this this idea that's still being practiced, but it's also very ancient that music does change the energy level. Well, I mean, science. Mm-hmm. I mean, scientifically, music change. Like, if you're in tune with a song, you're it regulates your your thought and your yeah your, your brains fire and, at, together yeah, so I mean, it's, yeah. it, and it's nuts how god has, has used this to to unite his people and so yeah it, it there is a balance uh, i think we either err on one side or the other we're we're elevating the music leader too highly or we're being way too casual and i, I think both are foolish but Anyhow, in verse 19, we're back in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 6. In verse 19, the stories come back together with Chronicles and Samuel. And uh, Samuel writes, and it, was told, and it was told to King David, the Lord has blessed Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. Now, David has figured out not everyone who comes in contact with the ark is going to die. So he goes to get it. And when... After figuring out that not everyone who comes in contact with it's going to be blessed. Um, Yeah. Well, (laughs) and it's that tension again. Mm -hmm. And I I love the fact that throughout these stories, we're being shown that tension and you've, you've got to walk with balance and discernment. And we're not told why it's different in if we just read Samuel. We really need those accounts of Chronicles to, to fill in mm-hmm. why it is different. Uh, the only clue we have really in sample, Samuel is that we've gone from merrymaking and celebrating to now David is rejoicing. And you know mm-hmm. before mm-hmm. there was that frivolous uh, kind of idea to it. Yeah. yeah. And, and now we have more of, uh, it, it's still joyful. I mean, the word is rejoiced. But it appreciates what a sacred event this was. And verse 13, and when those who bore the ark, still in Second Samuel, said, when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened uh, animal. So that detail, uh, as far as the six steps, is not recorded in Chronicles, and the book of Samuel does not give us any um, explanation for why six steps. The rabbi said it's because Uzzah died after he had taken six steps from the ark. And so 
you can't prove that from the text. You can't prove it from the text. Uh, Gematria would bring in the idea that six is the number of humanity. Mm -hmm. And so God is now allowing humans to move the ark. So David is celebrating that. Um, I, I think basically it's, we got it this far. There might be a snowball's chance that we can get it the rest of the sure, way. Sure. <laughs> I mean, uh, so we're like I said, we're not given that that uh, detail. Now, Chronicles does differ in the number. Uh, they say that David offered seven bulls and seven rams. There's no way to resolve the difference in the numbers. I, you know, you could talk about, well, maybe there are different sacrifices at one at the beginning of the journey, one's at the end of the journey. That was the only thing I could think of. Yeah. And, and, you know, whatever David offered a sacrifice, that's the point. He's so joyful. He gives in his joy. So verse 16, and David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. Now, Chronicles tells us that David was wearing a fine linen robe and an ephod. And we've been introduced to these linen robes and the ephod before. This was the gift that Hannah brought to young Samuel each year. This was the standard dress of the priest. And it's as such, it's a very important piece of clothing. It's a significant piece of clo- clothing. And we shouldn't be surprised that the writer of Samuel doesn't mention the robe because it's not important. It's the ephod that's important. Mm-hmm. But both books still manage to tell us that central tenet, the thing that's most important. David had cast aside his royal robes in order to dance before the ark. So basically he's like, he has become uh, one of the priests in this moment. So he, mm-hmm. He's not a king. The significance for him is not in being a king. It's, it's the fact that he can function as a priest. And we're going to get into David functioning as a priest. And there's some fun stuff there. So this also conveys humility before the Lord. He doesn't have to be decked out in his finery to, to worship God. He can just be kind of the stripped down version of himself. And it's an act of pure joy in front of God. You know, and I, and this might be a bit of, uh, of an overreach, but we see, you know, them dressing in sackcloth when they're mourning, mm-hmm. and now we see David casting off the royalty and rejoicing, and there's kind of this element of, uh, of equality mm-hmm. uh, w- during those times, mm-hmm. that everyone's should be the same. Yes. It, it, and we should all be able to rejoice in the Lord, regardless of our status. We mm-hmm. should all be able to mourn with with our friends who mourn, regardless of our status. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's necessarily the point or a point, but that's something that I'm looking at. I'm going, okay, yeah, every there, when we truly are rejoicing in the Lord, it's not about status. When, when we're truly mourning with one another, it's not about status. I think there really is something to that. And, uh, you know, and Paul talks about, you know, being all things to all people, you know, and all that, and rejoicing with those who rejoice and mourning with those who mourn. And, if, if you look at the book of Samuel and you look at the clothing, the clothing in Samuel could be its own character. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we keep having it brought up. Why? Because this is the symbol of what's going on within someone. You know, it's like when Jonathan gave David his clothing, he, he's recognizing David's going to be the next king. Right. And Jonathan voluntarily sets that aside. Uh, Saul, we, we see him stripped down naked, laying out prophesying. Why? Because when he's before God, he's not the king. Right. God, right. So, you know, you have the, these wonderful 
wonderfully full images in Samuel about how clothing conveys a, a bigger message. And I would love, and I've said this for years, I would love for someone to actually write a book looking at the use of clothing within Samuel. And I just don't have the time to do it because I, I have a feeling that there's a lot of stuff that I've missed and I need somebody who's more insightful to pick that up and run with it. But I know there's something there. So, but yeah, David, he, he's, he set aside his, his royal status and now he, he's dancing. And, you know, after the, the death of Uzzah, David had to confront the truth that moving God to Jerusalem was not his right as a king. It could only be accomplished if God allowed it. So to mm -hmm. see this as God granting him favor, as God extending grace, this is what leads him to be joyful and to want to celebrate in front of God. It's not that David managed to get the ark to Jerusalem. Remember the question he asked, how will the ark come to me? Not how will I bring it here, but mm -hmm. he, he changed it. Now David's realizing he is still dependent on God to accomplish these things. Right. So verse 15, and David and all the uh, house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Now Chronicles uh, basically tracks here. Now Kenaniah is um, mentioned by name. And there's a fuller list of instruments because Chronicles, you got to remember how grand the nation is. Mm -hmm. But it does conclude with the shofar or the horn. And when we know what we know about Samuel as you know, the writer of Samuel, and we know this because we've gone from the beginning of the book to this point, we know that one of the things he does is he strips everything back and he only gives you the details he thinks are important when they're important. So he has established a pattern that we as readers need to respect. Right. And you wouldn't get that if you hadn't read the book from beginning to this point. And so since he's decided to include this detail of the shofar to keep it when he cast aside all the other instruments, they were, you know, they didn't have any meaning for him. We have to ask, why is the shofar important? Why is this the detail he chooses to retain at this point? Now, the writer doesn't clarify. He gives us absolutely no um, explanation. But Professor Carl van der Torn at the University of Amsterdam gives us some interesting explanation. And so he sees this connection of the events of, first, of 2 Samuel 6 as part of a common ancient Near Eastern ceremony. Okay. And we know that this was probably around grape season, and it was a time for, well, I'm sorry. We don't know that it was around grape season. We're going we're gonna to talk about these ceremonies. We know these ceremonies often took place around grape season. Okay. And okay. they were, it was very significant that this was the time that they took place because, you know, you're getting your crops in, you're getting your grapes in, you're, getting, you're able to make the batch of wine for the next year. So, yes, you're going to celebrate God because... To, yeah, well, it, it would make sense in the storyline for them to want to bring the ark during this season because if David's the king, the mm -hmm. king might want to, you know, sacrifice before the ark. Mm -hmm. Yes. So. Well, and so if we look at the Ugaritic calendar, we find a cycle of holidays that's very similar to the Jewish calendar. And at this time of... You know what that is? That's proof that the Bible ripped people off. 
Or maybe they uh, lived in the same part of the world uh, yeah, where the right? seasons were similar. <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. And, uh, this, and I was actually thinking about this when I wrote this up. It's like, this is not to shake people's faith and to go, oh, the Bible's just plagiarized. And, you know, there's some very specific distinctions. We're going to talk about those, too. But the similarities are that the celebration would last for a month. And uh, this has happened around roughly the Jewish calendar month of Elul. And it is end, ends with the new year. Mm-hmm. And so this is Rosh Hashanah on the Jewish calendar. In both calendars, the height of the celebration was on the 15th. It lasted for seven days. It would include a temple sacrifice. The temple, um, very, very many, uh, lots of different um, temple-based rituals, and the king was the central player in these rituals. Mm-hmm. So in First Kings, when we get there in chapter 8, we're going to learn that Solomon considers this the appropriate time of the year, the most auspicious time of the year, to consecrate the, the new temple that he's just built. Makes sense. Okay, so under Jeroboam's reign, the celebration is going to continue and it's going to be one of the most significant for his kingdom. And in Israel, this was a time where you actively remembered God was king over Israel. And so that you celebrated it at this time. Now we have similar rituals. They're going to occur in Babylon, the Akitu festival. Well, and actually uh, Mm -hmm. I just want to put this out there. If this is the time to remember that God is king of Israel, it would make sense for David to lose his royal robes. That's a good point. I hadn't brought that up. But yeah, that's really good. So in, in the Babylon, uh, Akitu uh, festival, this was at the new year, and the image of Marduk was paraded around the city on a throne. And where is God enthroned? On the ark. Uh, yep. In the Ugaritic ceremonies, this was to commemorate, ba- commemorate Baal's uh, victory over Yamu and Mot, and he was hailed specifically as being king. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the Babylonians celebrated with Marduk, the, the king was t- said to actually take the god, uh, take Marduk by the hand and lead him back into the temple complex with the blast of trumpets. Hmm. And so the the theme of kingship was very much a part of all of these ceremonies. And Zamara, uh, he notes that there's similarities not only with the um, the Ugaritic and the Babylonian. He also notes that there's uh, Assyrian and Egyptian rituals that also follow these same kind of patterns. And so the shared language of ritual between all of these cultures would have been known to Israel. And it's not uncommon for God to co-opt a a known symbol of the day and reinterpret it to convey his message. Mm -hmm. And and we definitely know this. Uh, We see where he actually, there are different poems and things in the Psalms where have been rewritten to present God as greater than these other gods using the exact same words. So the exact same words used by other cultures. So to have this, the ark paraded into the city, led by the king, blessed by the, as he's dressed as the priest, and it's amid the blast of the shofar, we have this unmistakable message that everybody in the country would have understood. Mm -hmm. They're bringing in the God who is the king into the city. There's no denying this. Everyone got this because this was the language and pictures of the day used to convey this message. Mm -hmm. And so God is coming into Jerusalem to claim his throne. And I would bet my husband's dog that this happened at Rosh Hashanah. You'd bet your husband's dog on a lot less. 
this is true. So, I mean, <laughs> anybody want a Chowini? Uh, so, anyway, I don't have any evidence that this happened at Rosh Hashanah, but I, I just have this, this, this idea. And, you know, but the thing is, every time God co-ops a symbol for his use, uh, he doesn't just recreate it. He doesn't just rip it off. He actually reinterprets it. Mm-hmm. So this is not... He corrects it. He, he, and redeems it. Yeah, yeah. Imagine. And, and this isn't, you know, the, the Christian cover band switching out baby and deer for Jesus. This is an actual reinterpretation of the events. And so... Um, the idea here is that he is conveying that he's greater than all these other gods. Okay, first of all, the other gods were moved by their priest. God has already demonstrated he's not moved by humanity. Humanity has to allow him to yeah. move. They can invite him. Not going where he, he's not going anywhere unless he wants to. Exactly. So this is one huge point. So the priests don't just decide, hey, let's take God out for a walk. God tells the priest, hey, it's time to move. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he was like I said he wasn't taken by the priest and he wasn't taken by the king so the king did not take him by the hand the king actually had to re- maintain a respectful distance mm-hmm. David did not carry the ark right um, he wasn't led out of his temple and then brought right back to his temple so he wasn't taken from one place to return to the same place he's actually going into new territory mm-hmm. and is going to be manifest there. God doesn't need to be re-enthroned every year. That's the purpose of these these other ceremonies. It's, right. We're gonna make sure he's he's on their good. You know. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's not he's not a sun god. He's not a weather god. He he, he, he doesn't, doesn't change. Yeah. He's not a, he's not one of those seasonal gods. Exactly. And so the the purposes of when Israel celebrates this, it isn't to re-enthrone God. And even as they continued these annual celebrations of God being king, the idea was you're supposed to remember God never stopped being king. Mm-hmm. He, he, there was never a threat to his throne through the passage of time. You know, the, the year didn't wear him out and he needs to be supercharged. <laughs> yeah. yeah. God is always in control. So it's wholly appropriate that when you bring the God King into this new capital city, that you would blow the shofar because you're announcing the King is arriving Mm -hmm. and David has cast off his robes. He's saying, I'm not the King. Mm -hmm. Here's your King. And so we, we have to remember that this whole point of this book is to teach us that, or this, this episode, David doesn't get to do what David wants to do because he's David. David has to be in submission to God. And so I think that the writer of of Samuel was very intentional in uh, retaining that that element of the shofar Mm -hmm. because that's what makes people look at these other celebrations to, to make that connection. And so, you know, the human king might be necessary so that God's wisdom and words and decrees can be dispensed among the people of the Mm -hmm. nation. But the king is only as good as he is devoted to God. Right. So, verse 16. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window, saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. 
So this verse here is a bit of foreshadowing. We get this little glimpse of Mikkel. She sees what's happening. She's not happy. Um, and this is where, to me, I see uh, Aunt David is Andy Dwyer now <laughs> um, from Parks and Rec. <laughs> Chris Pratt is hilarious. Yeah, he and we we are kind of this little verse here because we aren't going to deal with Mikkel here really that much. Because this this verse kind of gives us a little foreshadow of, of what's going to happen, but immediately the author shifts us right back to what's going on with David. Mm. We just need to know that she saw it. She's aware of what's going on, but we don't need to spend too much time with her, even in the text, because the important part's going to come up later. So verse 17 and they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt and peace offerings before the Lord. Verse 18. And when David had finished offering the burnt and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. That great title that we find so often in Samuel. Verse 19. And distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and cakes of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. So what's really interesting and also very problematic about these verses is it seems like David is doing all of this, that there's no priest doing it on his behalf being mentioned. Right. It sounds like he is functioning as a priest. And the problem is we already know that Saul, this is one of the things he got in trouble for. Right. So even everybody, there's a lot of arguments being made that, that, well, you know, we just don't have the whole story. The idea of doing it on behalf of the king is the same as the king doing it. Uh, But, you know, even in Chronicles where we have these lengthy lists of Levites and priests and we're given their names and we have their duties outlined, there's still nothing that changes. David's still presented as the one doing it. And so... There's been a lot of attempts to, to kind of solve this issue. And like I said, one of them is, well, David commanded it and it's being done on his behalf. Okay, possibly. But the problem with that solution is we are assuming things that aren't in the text. Mm. The problem with that is almost any solution we come up with, we're going to have to assume something that's, that's not, not in the text. Fair. So <laughs> I, I want to be... Uh, clear on that so you know the first rule is scripture interprets scripture so that's Mm -hmm. what we have to go and look for is there is another scripture that explains this so that if we do import something or impose something on this text we're imposing other scripture not just our own ideas right so in psalms 110 which is a davidic psalm it's a messianic psalm it's a prophetic psalm uh, we find uh, we have a possible solution. And the problem is a lot of times when we've read Psalms 110, Christians love the Psalm because they do see it as prophetic. And so mm-hmm. they tend to read it as applying strictly to Jesus. And they forget that when David was writing it, David was the Messiah. He was the anointed one. And David is very much presenting himself and how he sees God as viewing him within this. And so David specifically declares in Psalm 110 that he is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
So if we took time to read through the entire psalm, we're going to find that the psalm itself is about this convergence of kingship and priesthood and the supremacy of the king in Zion based on God's favor and honor. So I did not do a full breakdown, but I just want to hit some high points. So if we look at what's going on with David here in in Samuel, and we look back at Melchizedek, we can find three uniting elements. One is both David and Melchizedek bless people. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. David blesses the nation of Israel. Uh, Both feed people. David just provided this great feast for everyone. Melchizedek feeds Abraham. And then, of course, they're both priests, uh, both wearing the linen ephod of the priest. Uh, the, it's not specifically stated that Melchizedek was dressed as a priest, but there is this presumption within the text, and well, it states that he's a priest, so there's this presumption that he would w- have the signs of being a priest evident because Abraham somehow knew that he's a priest. And so, of course, we have the question Why could David as a king function as a priest when Saul couldn't? And I think the answer might actually be in location and in accomplishment because David did something Saul never did. David conquered Jerusalem. Right. And so as the conqueror of Jerusalem, David has the rights to assume the roles of any of the city's previous rulers. Okay. This is... One being... Melchizedek. Exactly. And so that Genesis 14, we're told Melchizedek, he's the king of Salem. He's also the priest of the Most High. And so as the new ruling king of Jerusalem or Salem, David has every right to step into that role Hmm. as the priest and the king. And we got to remember in all the Canaanite religions, the priest was not the primary mediator between gods and men. Right. It was the king. Mm-hmm. And so when David steps into this role, he's actually looking back to a tradition that predates the Sinai co- covenant. So in Psalms 110, uh, 110, David is actually writing and he's realigning the expectations of king and priest to reunite them in Jerusalem. And it's from the city that God's going to rule, and it's this place that God is going to execute judgment on the nation. Jerusalem is presented as the only legitimate place where this kind of power can be exercised. Mm. So verse 2, the Lord sends forth from, from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Saul, again, never conquered Jerusalem. He doesn't have this right because he is not in the right place. And this is despite the fact Saul had every reason to try to to conquer Jerusalem right. because his it, half of it belonged to his tribe, just like half of it belonged to David's tribe. But Saul never acquired any new lands. Well, that's the other thing mm-hmm. I remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, he never drove out the people who lived in Israel that weren't supposed to be there. And the the conquest for Israel really as a nation, as a whole, really stopped back in Judges 2 when the angel of the Lord departed from them because the people weren't doing what they were supposed to do. A king was supposed to reunite, or reignite that, that command, that mandate, mm-hmm. that they conquer all of Canaan. And Saul, he failed generally in Israel and specifically with Jerusalem. And now David begins his role and his reign as king 
by conquering the Jerusalem. I mean, he has uh, worked towards the fulfillment, not just of what God has commanded them when they entered Canaan. He's actually pulling on that that time of Abraham and in the, in the older covenant. Exactly. And so when he establishes his kingdom, his capital city, where the priesthood and the king, kingdom has been, sorry, the priesthood and the kingship has been united, he, he proves that he's able to do this by bringing the ark into the city. So he's reclaiming and reinstituting a tradition that has dated as far back as we can possibly remember. Mm-hmm. And so we also find that this, this is a lasting legacy. In 2 Samuel 8, 18, we discover that David's sons are also priests, which David's sons should not be priests because we know for a fact they're not Levites. Right, right. And so it's at this point that the chronicler uh, takes a break from, from the Samuel narrative and gives us another list of Levites who were serving. And so... When you look at Chronicles and how the focus is on the Levites and their duties and how David is installing them, who is he? I think we forget that the king has no right to explain to the, the, the Levites how to serve right. unless we do have these combined roles. Hmm. And so only whenever David reunites the two roles do we have this this throwback to Abraham's reign. And we're going to talk about how this is even further strengthened by the song David's going to sing in First, Chron- in, yeah, First Chronicles. And so it, it's really interesting how subtle it is, but once you see it, it's everywhere. It, it's obvious, yeah. <laughs> so. So. That's, that's like a lot of things in the Bible. Like once you see it, you're like, oh my goodness. I And that's the thing I've really enjoyed about doing this and also listening to a lot of other scholars through different podcasts and things, as I really am seeing um, that I have really interpreted the Bible through a lot of tradition. Oh, yeah. And there's a lot of things that I have assumed upon the text, and I love going back to it, just what does the Bible actually say? What does it Mm -hmm. literally say there? And there's many times where, and I can't think of any specific uh, (laughs) off the top of my head, but I know there have been many times we've gone through a passage and I've gone, Oh wow, that doesn't say anything close to what I was told. It <laughs> right, you, and it's like how did how did we even get there from here? Well, so, uh, and I think you know, and I really, for me, what kind of drove it home too was whenever, you know, I'm reading through this, and the only reason why I stopped to think why is the shofar mentioned was mm-hmm. because I knew how the writer of Samuel operated. And if I hadn't already had that pattern established in my mind, it probably wouldn't have stood out to right, me. Right. And, and so it really is a matter of practice and getting familiar with the text. Yep. And that's something that only happens with time and, and discipline. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying I'm great at it, but I mean, one of the things I love about this podcast is it gives me a great excuse to do what I love to do mm-hmm. anyway. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, that's, I hope that everybody who's listening is getting inspired to go, okay, what can I see? Yeah. Where can yeah. I take this? And absolutely. Absolutely. Well, um, I think that's a good high point to end on. Um, so yeah. we will uh, be back next week. If you enjoyed uh, hanging out with us, be part of the conversation. Raven Creek SC on all the social media. Ravencreeksc.com is the website where you can find this show and others and more to come in the future. 
hopefully we'll be getting that together soon. Yeah. Surprise, and surprise. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> um, but in the meantime, uh, just hit us up. Let us know what you think. And we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash Raven Creek SC. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.